0: Hello and welcome to 10x9, 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn, and this is the 10x9 podcast. I don't think 10x9 has ever been busier, which is great, and there are new offshoots starting in Texas and Nottingham in England, which is really exciting. In the fact, I started a new job recently, and that goes part ways to explaining why there haven't been quite so many podcasts of late. But this edition will go some way to making up for it. Three wonderful stories on the theme Scared to Death.
1: Listen, we're a bit out of the way here, and there's no shops anywhere close, so be sure to bring a piece with you. <laughs> <laughs> You're way ahead of me.
2: A crisp, bright autumn day, blue sky big fluffy white clouds and 20-foot flames flying out of the top of my chimney.
3: Mum said very few people went to heaven directly. You'd have to be an exceptionally holy person, like a nun or Padre Pio, but only really bad people went straight to hell, like
0: murderers and maybe also atheists. It was our October event in the Black Box and we had a full house and a wonderful Halloween atmosphere, which is just perfect for our stories. So let's start with a first timer to the Black Box. He joined us once on Zoom, so it was great to meet in person. Here's George Sproul.
1: I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised when the meltdown happened. But there was nothing to suggest that it would. Working with older teenagers, you learn very quickly that anything is possible, you need eyes in the back of your head and the foresight of the oracle of Delphi if you're going to survive. We'll call him John. He lived with his mum, no dad was ever mentioned, and he wore the uniform of the day like all his peers, tattoos and attitude as a kind of a buy one get one free add-on. His grandfather, now deceased, had been a military man, and John clearly idolised him, many times sharing with whoever would listen that he wanted to follow his example and embark on a career as a soldier. The Tats all had vague military references, and he talked the talk. He worked out a bit too. And he had a set of weights in his bedroom, and there was the suggestion of the use of some chemical additives to help the bulking out process, but that was never confirmed. Everything was pointing in the general direction of when he could join up. His peers sort of left him alone. No one picked on him, and he was rarely the butt of jokes just a relatively unremarkable part of the collection of idiots who rocked up each day and for whom I had to try and find a work placement. Deep joy. The reward was £29.50 a week training allowance. And it was little wonder there was such little interest in what I was offering, particularly when the local community representatives would pay them four times as much to deliver a package or keep something under their bed for a few nights. I'd spoken to John on a few occasions and it became apparent that he actually fancied a bit of outdoor work as a kind of stopgap until the army process kicked into gear. I made a few calls and off we went meet a landscape gardener who had the grounds contract for a large school in the leafy part of the Newtonards Road. You can work it out. (laughs) He also took no nonsense from anyone so I knew he could manage a lad who really just needed a real-life male role model. The chat all went well and a start date was agreed. I got some paperwork signed and we chatted about which of the lethal arsenal of equipment he was allowed to use. As we parted, the guy said to John, Listen, we're a bit out of the way here, and there's no shops anywhere close, so be sure to bring a piece with you. (laughs) You're way ahead of me. (laughs) Sensible suggestion, I thought. John was unusually quiet on the way back to the office in the car. What's up? I asked. There was a pause before he spoke. Where will I get a gun? (laughs) Came the answer. What? I squeaked, somewhat taken aback. A gun? Where will I get a gun? He told me I needed to bring a piece and I don't have one. He meant your lunch, you clumpet. <laughs> a sandwich, a piece of bread. Relief washed over him as the notion of having to do some shitty deal for a handgun in a back room in the Cock and Hen bar floated out the car window. <laughs> to be fair, he stuck at the work and learned a few useful gardening skills as well as finding an outlet for all his energy. And through the summer months, he stayed out of bother, and I only saw him on a Friday as he called for his allowance and when I made an arranged monitoring visit on site. Now, the Training and Employment Agency, as it was then called, were keen that we spent money on the vaguest concept I have ever encountered, running personal development sessions, to which we dragged our stroppy clientele kicking and screaming. Over the years, we managed to come up with some activities that actually made some kind of discernible impact. And we found that something with a bit of physical risk and an adrenaline rush made them a bit more attractive. Greenhill YMCA in Newcastle had a high-level ropes course, which proved quite popular. It was a day out near the mountains and the sea, and the food was always good. Plus, they also had a zip line and a few other things that engaged their attention. So off we tripped in early September with a full, very smelly minibus to tackle the ropes. The catch was, the staff were expected to take part as well. Now for me this was a real challenge. Following a nasty tumble from a ladder some years previously, I was less than comfortable with the notion of climbing up telegraph poles and dangling in midair even with safety harnesses. A woozy head and the feeling that I was going to throw up everywhere was the most likely outcome. The course involved a series of traverses between telegraph poles, which got more difficult as you went across. It started by climbing up a ladder to a platform on the first pole. Between the first two poles was a narrow boardwalk with a gap in the middle that you had to step across. The next traverse was a single rope for your feet with two ropes to hang on to, then a single rope with one rope to hang on to, then two crossed ropes in a big X, which meant you had to turn round and face the other way. The last section was a crawl on hands and legs along two parallel ropes before contorting yourself onto a trapeze to be lowered onto the ground. It scared the tar out of me. And of course I had to go first. Despite the constant feeling that I was going to rain chunks and all below, I made it. I could hardly stand up at the finish, but felt a certain whoo sense of exhilaration that I'd faced the fear and done it. Go me. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> Next across was Jimmy Jamie was five foot nothing and very slightly built, had a training placement in an office, but was probably better known for the reputation she enjoyed, allegedly, for breaking and entering and house house, uh, burgling. She was up the ladder and across to the trapeze before anybody could utter the words annual house insurance premium... (laughs) And it really did very little to dispel the rumours about her, to be honest. (laughs) Then it was John's turn. He climbed the ladder and stood at the start of the boardwalk. I clocked very quickly. All was not well. He shuffled along to the gap in the boards, which was about a foot wide, and he stopped and just stood. The rest of the group helpfully shouted their encouragement up from ground level. Go on, you big wuss, hurry up! (laughs) Move, you big Jesse! And several other more pointed observations and exhortations that really did little to help. But he had completely frozen, terrified to go over even the smallest challenge of the course. And in that instant, all his image, The military ambition, the bluster, melted like butter in a hot pan. It was heartbreaking to watch, and we were unable to do anything about it. Piss off, I'll do it my own time, came wafting down from above. But I knew he wouldn't. He just couldn't. We got the rest of the group out of the way and the instructor and I talked him through turning around and making his way back along the boards to the first pole to get onto the ladder and descend. When he stood back in the ground, I went over to get the harness off him and he flailed out to keep me away but realised that I needed to unclip the lines so eventually he calmed down and let me. Hot tears of frustration and rage burning in his eyes. We spoke to him as best we could, but the embarrassment was blocking out our words. He rejoined the group where was a fair bit of ribbing directed his way in that wonderful, brutal, supportive way that teenagers have. But by late afternoon, the sting of the event had subsided, overtaken by other activities, ice cream and the football game on the beach. As I reflected on the drive home, I reckoned that maybe I was the only one who realised that really, he was the bravest one of the whole lot of us. It takes a lot of courage to climb down when you're scared to death. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, George. Brave indeed. I hope you enjoyed your first real turn at the 10x9 mic, and that we'll have you back soon. And if, like George, you'd like to tell your story, but are a little nervous or shy, or even if you're not, then get in touch at the 10x9 website, and I'll do my best to make it happen for you. Okay, let's get on to our second story, and she's become a wonderful supporter of 10x9 since finding us about 18 months ago. Here's Josephine Hassan.
2: Okay, any firemen in here tonight? No? Oh, I'm disappointed (laughs) now. You'll know why in a minute. (laughs) I'm a fairly unflappable human being, really. Indeed, I have actually been advised that sometimes I maybe do not have the sense to know when I should panic. Still haven't decided if that was meant as a compliment or an insult, but I'll take it as a compliment. A long number of years ago now, uh, one beautiful crisp autumn day, a bit like today, I was at home with my two small children. The boys were about one and two at the time. It was a Saturday. The grocery shopping, the cleaning, the ironing, the various chores around the house were completed for the day. And I thought I'd set the fire in the living room so that there'd be plenty of hot water for bath time later on. And I like a wee homely fire. It's hard to beat the comfort. I set the paper and the kindling in the grate. I put a wee match to it, put the spark yard and the childproof Fireguard back in place I closed the living room door and I went back to the kitchen where two wee mugwais were playing quite peacefully Five minutes later I was passing the closed living room door and I heard a funny swishing sound but I thought nothing of it I went about my business I was probably taking a reluctant toddler to the potty to sit and sing songs and chat until he'd performed like a professional but hey, you know the joys of a young mother Passing the door on the way back again, the swishing sound was louder. I hadn't left the TV on, had I? Didn't even remember switching it on. Perplexed, I opened the door to see that the fire was roaring like a banshee up the chimney of the open fireplace. But there weren't any flames in the grate. It can't be too bad, I thought. But I'll tell you what, all the Panshees in Ireland would have been drowned out by the rip of that fire. I closed the door, opened my front door and walked out to the gate to look up. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon. Like I said, a crisp, bright autumn day, blue sky, big fluffy white clouds and 20-foot flames flying out of the top of my chimney dancing a red and orange jig, flames colour so vivid that they would have been magnificent on the banner of any self-respecting orange lodge. (laughs) A group of wee boys were sat on the opposite neighbour's wall. Hey, missus, your house is in fire. You better get the fire brigade. I oh, ficking likely, thought I, as I went back into the house. You think I'm giving you we gets a spectacle to write stories about a school next week? <laughs> I don't think so. I lifted the phone, landline back in the day, punched the buttons. The eldest of my brothers, who happens to be next in line to me, is a retained fireman in the local station. A butcher by trade, at that time he ran a thriving butcher shop on the main street of Dungiven. The conversation went something like this. Eugene, I've a wee bit of a chimney fire. Tell me what to do to put it out. A chimney fire, says he. Aye, isn't there something about spraying water in around the bottom of the grate? Says Mrs. Calm, laid back and horizontal. Err, girl, I heard. Come from Dungiven, by the way, I'm the only girl in a house full of boys. Err, girl, he whispers again. I could hear his neck actually creaking down the phone line as he shook his head in total disbelief. Do not spray anything in around the grate. How bad's the fire? Well, says me, there's 20-foot flames coming out of the top of the chimney. They're taller than the house. I discreetly crack the living room door open at this point to find that the whole room is now engulfed in smoke. Not flames, just smoke. There's still no fire. I close the door and I quietly tell him of this discovery. I hadn't finished talking when he had started, so I missed the start of his sentence, but the end of it was dial 999 and ask for the fire brigade. Ah, Jesus Christ, our boy, I'm not calling the fire brigade. "'It'll be all over the bloody town, "'and it'll be in the Dairy Journal on Tuesday, "'and all your mates in the fire engine "'will be in thick and hysterics at me setting the place on fire. "'And some of them boys are my brothers, "'brothers of my old school friends. And "'No, it's not happening. "'You're just going to have to tell me what to do.' "'I hear the hiss as he sucked his breath in through his teeth.' And I feel his impatience galloping down the old analogue line. My out-of-body self can hear my mother panicking and screaming. And my father sitting there in the corner telling me, I it'll be grand. There's nothing we can't sort out. I have my daddy's jeans. Erger! <laughs> I am going to hang up. You are going to put the phone into the cradle... Lift it again, dial 999, ask for the fire brigade, tell them you have a chimney fire, and give them your address. The line went dead. I stood there. Bloody hell, last time I asked you for advice, you faker. (laughs) But I did What I didn't want to do. Much ado about nothing. Then I went to the kitchen, took the two boys outside to the front garden to play and to wait for the fire engine. Oh, oh, oh God, I remembered. Jesus, I bet they're going waking himself before the fire engine arrives. (laughs) Shit, (laughs) himself was sleeping after coming off a night shift. Oh, Jesus, wept, I'd better get him out of the bed before some big gulping of a fireman lands on top of him with an oxygen mask and breathing apparatus. Holy Christ, where I am calm and unflappable, himself makes up for me in triplicate. Oh, Jesus, I thought we'd have to re-plasterboard the bedroom ceiling after I had quietly wakened him and delivered the news. The fire engine arrived in a blaze of glory, pardon the pun. Flashing blue lights, shiny red metalwork, hundreds of metres of snaking hose, and enormous ladders and the bloody siren blaring full blast for the whole town to hear. It only had to travel 200 yards to get to me. There was no bloody need for that. My two wee boys were delighted at all the excitement. My face was the colour of the bloody engine. By now, every single adult in the development was out at the front door, cups of tea in their hand, watching the proceedings. The wee boys across the road, Jesus, they'd obviously banged the jungle drums. And now they had all their wee muckers gathered up. And there were about three rows of the wee fakers sitting there on the wall and on the kerb, bottles of pop, bags of sweet, bags of crisps in hand, bunching away like they were in the cinema watching Rambo. The wee buggers were having a ball. Hey, missus, we told you you needed the fire brigade as your house and fire inside. Can we go in to see? What's your man doing there with that big hose? Well, you have to tumble your house after. At this stage, a chain gang of burly firemen and a few nuts to burly were tripping in and out of the garden path, armed with galvanised buckets and metal shovels, to remove the debris of the fire out of the grate. They then sprayed the bottom of the grate with a wee squeegee bottle, like a water splay for a houseplant. This was to cool the firebrick, I was told. I fick knew that's what I needed to do, <laughs> so wait till I see that bloody galoot of a brother again. He could have just told me that and saved me the embarrassment. A trip up to the loft by my friend's brother was taken to check for chimney cracks and potential sparks, which might cause a real fire later if undiscovered. There was, of course, the inevitable cajoling and taking the piss that only did boys do best with their own kith and kin, but they still managed to remain very professional heroes. There was no sign of my brother among those heroes, though. Not a squeak. A few hours later, after dispatching the two wee ones to the mother-in-law, the chimney had cooled, himself had not. We were washing down the smoke damage from the walls when in saunters my lovely brother. aha says he. Me bleeper went off while I was boning out a chicken for a customer. I knew it was only you near your wee chimney fire and that you wouldn't be panicking. So it didn't bother me ass answering the call. <laughs> wasn't it a good job I wasn't scared to death?
0: What can I say, Josephine? Brilliant, as always, so calm under pressure, even in front of 200 strangers. Thank you so much. 10x9 is always free and always will be, but I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who has donated via Patreon over the years. It helps cover our costs and we're truly grateful. Thanks too to everyone at the live events who has donated via StoryPig, our big China piggy bank, really appreciated and helps keep us going. Okay, here's our third and final story on this podcast, and he's a 10x9 regular and the king of props. It's Richard O'Leary. My first encounter with death
3: was when I was a five-year-old. It was in our family home. My mother took me by the hand and she led me into the bedroom. In the bedroom, there was a body a dead body, the body of my grandmother. My grandmother, who up to a few days earlier, used to say to me, give me a kiss, and I'll give you a silver mint. And she'd hold up her (laughs) packet of silver mints, and I'd give her a kiss, and she'd give me a silver mint, until after granny's death, and there were no more silver mints. But it wasn't all loss. There was a silver lining. I did get to move into my granny's bed. (laughs) After her death, my parents distributed her printed memorial card. It's a Catholic thing. (laughs) Here's granny's memorial card. It has a picture of granny on it. Audience, granny. (laughs) Granny, the audience. Printed on this memorial card are some prayers called indulgence prayers. These are short prayers which the Catholic family of the dead person recite for the deceased. Prayers like this one written on my granny's memorial card and which I learned to repeat. Sweetheart of Jesus, be thou my love, 300 days. Sweetheart of Jesus, be thou, my love, 300 days. That's when my mom explained to me that the words 300 days, they weren't actually part of the prayer. <laughs> the 300 days referred to the reduction in the time granny might have to spend in purgatory every time I said the indulgence prayer. Purgatory? What's that? Being a five-year-old, I was... a bit young for a lesson in Catholic theology. But my mom gave me the basics, and which tonight I will share with you. <laughs> See, you always learn something new from my stories. We were taught that when a person died, they could go to any of three places. These places were heaven, hell, and purgatory. Mum said very few people went to heaven directly. You'd have to be an exceptionally holy person, like a nun or Padre Pio. But only really bad people went straight to hell, like murderers and maybe also atheists. (laughs) Most people went to purgatory, which was a sort of waiting room where you went to wait before possibly being admitted into heaven. But if your surviving relatives said indulgence prayers for you, that would reduce the waiting time. This was useful to know, so I continued to pray for my granny, but I dropped the word 300 days. The dead in our Catholic tradition were referred to as the Holy Souls, and they have their own festival. It's the Feast of the Holy Souls, which is on the 2nd of November. And every year at the beginning of November, my mum would go to a local Catholic church and she would come back with an envelope. This, one of mum's envelopes, on the envelope is written, Church of the Most Precious Blood, Novena for the Holy Souls. The priests of the parish will offer nine masses for the deceased relatives and friends of all those who send names for the November list of the dead. And inside... This envelope, there's a piece of lined paper headed, November altar, list of the dead. And on the sheet my mum would write in the names of the dead relatives, like granny's name, and then she'd put in a banknote and then give the envelope to our parish priest Father Lucy. My mum wasn't the only source of knowledge about death. My dad was also very concerned about what happened when we die. Dad was on the pessimistic wing of the Catholic Church. Dad feared that most people, when they died, appeared for them. But forewarned is to be prepared. And among my dad's religious reading material was this religious booklet. It's titled, Read Me or Rue It. This is no fringe publication. (laughs) There's a foreword written for it by no less authority than the Cardinal Patriarch of Lisbon, though admittedly, his recommendation was written in 1936. (laughs) I had learned to read at a very young age, which is generally no bad thing, but sometimes children can be exposed too early to adult reading. Inside this publication, I read on page four, I can find page four now, It's the dark, there we are, purgatory is a prison of fire in which nearly all souls are plunged after death and in which they suffer the intensest pain. <laughs> Maybe you only thought Ulster Protestants were obsessed with fire and brimstone. <laughs> But no, some Catholics are too. (laughs) And on page six, it comes to the most important question, the question which preoccupied me as a child, a question which now may also be on your minds, the question, how long do souls remain in purgatory? According to this booklet, St Malachy, He was a 12th-century Irish saint. His sister was detained in purgatory for a very long time, (laughs) despite the masses, prayers, and heroic mortifications that Saint Malachy offered for her release. So I learned that souls, like my grannies, could remain in purgatory for a very long time, no matter how many prayers of indulgence I recited. The Catholic Church in my childhood provided us with great detail about purgatory, including pictures. Would you like to see a picture of purgatory? (laughs) This is a picture of purgatory on the cover of the booklet I read. In the picture, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, with child Jesus on her lap. Mary is looking down below at people engulfed by flames, In the flames, there's a man with a bald head, half-naked, with a sort of blanket thrown over his back. He looks very unhappy. And there are some young people in the flames who look very frightened. There is no sign of Granny. (laughs) As a child, when I lay in bed in the dark, sucking my silver mints, and thought about those unhappy souls in purgatory. I wasn't just scared to death, I was terrified. No wonder, as an adult, I've turned out the way I have. <laughs> Decades later in Belfast, still thinking about my dead granny and the holy souls in purgatory.
0: <laughs> ah, Richard, hilarious. Where would 10 by 9 be without religion and bodily functions? you got to love Catholic dogma. And that's it for this podcast. Check out all the 10x9 upcoming dates on our website, including some special events leading up to Christmas. And keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It'd be really helpful if you could give us the podcast a review or rating at Apple Podcasts to help get us noticed and tell as many people as you can about 10x9 and the 10x9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who makes 10x9 happen, the fabulous Leanne McConville, Margaret McClory and Chris O'Donoghue. There wouldn't be a 10x9 without them. Thanks, of course, to the beautiful people of the Black Box and our amazing supportive audience and all our amazing storytellers, of course, but especially George Sproul, Josephine Hassan and Richard O'Leary. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye.